Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The day before my sister's pretend wedding, the family gathered in Maine for our annual meeting at my grandfather's island house so he could tell us how much of a disappointment we'd been. Dressed like a clam digger in rubber boots, filthy canvas pants, and an old sweatshirt full of pipe ash holes, he rose from his wing chair and levered himself to his feet with his cane. Stains extended from his collar to his knees because at mealtimes he used himself as a plate. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Jason Brown, author of A Faithful but Melancholy Account of Several Barbarities Lately Committed. In this collection, 10 stories are linked together by their connection to an area on the coast of Maine and the family of John Stoughton Howland. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Glee. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. So let's get started. How did you come up with the Howland family and what made you write this book? I started writing about the Howlands quite a few years ago, maybe eight years ago. Um, I grew up in uh, in Maine and uh, and in a family, in a New England family on my father's side, um, who's lived in the, I guess, the same more or less the same 200 mile radius since um, our ancestor of John Howland came over on the on the Mayflower, and so I'm actually related to the the uh, the the original Howland uh, that's uh, referenced in the book. Um, uh, my last name is Brown, but you know one of my great grandmothers was a Howland, so um, so I, it's it's semi autobiographical, I guess. The book is wow. Okay, and then what made you write the book? What made me write the book? You know, uh, you know that's an interesting question. Um, uh, for me, I I grew up in this in this what felt like a very specific uh, world. Um, it didn't feel that way when I was growing up in it. This sort of northern New England uh, world where we were related to a lot of people. I was I spent. Um, a lot of time around cousins, second cousins. Um, I lived with my grandparents for periods of time and we, I had a very intense sense of, uh, sort of belonging to the place where I grew up. And, um, and when I left, uh, New England in my twenties, um, I've always felt a, a sort of longing for that, uh, kind of belonging and identity that I had growing up. And, um, at the same time that uh, I also felt that it was sort of oppressive, um, that I had always wanted to escape it. Um, and I think now that I'm a little bit older, there's a mixture of uh, nostalgia and, uh, you know, for um, that I feel that I've felt for my own past, but also because I'm not just writing for myself, I'm trying to contextualize the kind of cultural upbringing that I had uh, through fiction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Howland Island. Is that a real place? And tell us about the part of Maine where it is. Um, 
the Howland Island is the Howland Island that I'm writing about. I think there probably is a Howland Island somewhere, but the one I'm writing about is a fictional island. It's based on a real place um, where I spent a lot of time. Um, but it's it's definitely a, a fictional place. That, but the location, the area of Maine is mid-coast Maine, um, the Sheepskit Bay, and that's um, more or less where I grew up in that area. Hmm. And um, John Howland, the actual John Howland, the original Mayflower passenger, came over, came to uh, um, that area um, to to do trading uh, within the first few years of the of the Mayflower landing. And then um, a lot of the sort of Mayflower people ended up in Maine and New Hampshire in uh, subsequent generations uh, for various reasons, uh, for fishing. But a lot of them were actually kicked out of a lot of my ancestors were kicked out of the, uh, uh, the, the Plymouth colony because they weren't uh, uh, religious enough or they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't adhering to the rules. <laughs> mm. So a lot of early Maine and, and New Hampshire people were, were early sort of rebels of the, of the Plymouth colony. Yeah. Aside from the fam- uh, the familial relationships, the land itself is a consistent, a consistent character across the stories. Is that your intention? Yeah, it's very much my intention. I mean, I, um, you know, I not only grew up, you know, on the coast and in boats and, uh, with, a you know, a real sense of the land and, and, and the ocean. Um, but I spent a lot of time with my grandparents who gave me, um, a distinct feeling of my family history. Um, uh, many of uh, my ancestors were ship captains and, uh, there are a lot of stories about, you know, um, you know, my early ancestors and the adventures they had. And, and so, uh, but, I think it's true of a lot of people that you don't feel so strongly for a place necessarily until you leave it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you begin to feel, then it takes on a life of its own in your memory. Um, and that's something that happens to the main character, the younger John in, in the book is that uh, he ends up moving to the West coast and um, he's both drawn back to where he came from and also feels like he doesn't fit in there anymore. Didn't he move to Oregon? Yeah, he did. Hmm, little, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I live in Oregon now. Yeah. So. Um, is he a professor at the university there currently no. on sabbatical in Colorado? Yeah. <laughs> he he wishes he were. Okay. Um. <laughs> so let's unpack all the stories. There's ten of them. The first one is set in 2003. John Stoughton Howland is a widowed old man trying to sneak out of the house. And he's trying to get his little visiting grandson to lie about where he is. So tell us, talk about John. John is, you know, is and is not my grandfather. Um, And I think that's true of a lot of the fiction that I've loved over the years. Um, um, You know, the fiction by Tobias Wolf or Raymond Carver or Alice Monroe. I often feel like when I'm a huge Alice Monroe fan. And when I read her stories, I often feel like I'm reading sort of iterations of her life, characters who are based on her or based on people she knew. But in any case, um, the, the John in this story, first story is largely based on my grandfather who was um, a World War II veteran and um, was one of the liberators of uh, one of the camps. Uh, um, and um, he never told any of those stories until um, 
in the, uh, the months before he died. So he kept all his sort of war experiences inside um, until the months before he died. And so we had no idea what he had experienced and no idea how much it had affected him. Um, and that's to some extent what this story is about. Yeah. Do you consider John's experience like your grandfather's during World War II to be the pivotal moment of his life? I think it was probably, I mean, I was very close to my, I consider myself to have been very close to my grandfather, but um, the war was something he never talked about. Um, and so it was very hard to tell, um, you know, if it was a pivotal moment, if it was the pivotal moment uh, in his life. Um and I think that's true of a lot of people who live in the world that I grew up in. That's true of a lot of people, I think, in his generation, the so-called greatest generation, is that they kept things deeply buried inside. And on some level, you felt like you didn't know them. And what I did end up feeling is that, you know, it was sort of sad that there was a whole side of his life that I didn't come to know um, before he died. And um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, he may have felt, he to some extent felt isolated by this experience and not and not having shared it you know so i think to some extent the story is about that's uh, the a uh, degree of loneliness that people who experience uh something so extreme like uh you know that kind of combat or war or or trauma um they can feel very isolated if they keep it inside their whole lives i mean we now live in a different time but in that era i think many of those people and those veterans and especially these sort of repressed new Englanders who I grew up among, um, they, um, you know, they, you know, they, they felt very isolated, you know, and, and that was, uh, it's part of my looking back on, on not just my own family experience, but the cultural experience that I grew up with and, and what is, you know, how, how, uh, is love expressed? Uh, you know, you think you were close to somebody, but you don't really know them because they've, you know, they've walled off so much of themselves, you know, from everyone else. Um, so I think that the story is sort of reflecting on all those things and how they fit together. Mm -hmm. In the second story, John's grandson, John Jacobs Howland, recalls staying with his grandparents in the summer of 1981. So I'm just wondering, what, where were you in the summer of 1981? And John remembers the story very vividly. So I'm wondering what, are your memories of that summer? Yeah. I mean, uh, I was, you know, living, um, I was doing, I was living very much like, uh, the character <laughs> I was living with my grandparents in 1981, uh, in the summer. And, um, they're living on an Island, you know, in Maine. And, um, and they're surrounded by a lot of summer people and a lot of people who are not summer people. And, um, those are two different, very different categories that our family sort of fit into both of those categories because we were, we lived in Maine year round, but we were also this island, uh, we were on this island where we had had a place, my family's had a place for many generations. And uh, that island is mostly sort of populated by summer people from out of state. And so it captures a little bit of that divide, but I think the vividness of the memory is fueled by, you know, the author's sense of nostalgia, but also the characters, you know, transferred through the, the, uh, the, the narrator's sense of, uh, you know, the intensity of that childhood experience. And what you come to see right away in that story and in the following story is that 
the author doesn't, I mean, not the author, I'm sorry, the character, the narrator of those, of, of the last voyage of the Alice B. Toklas doesn't feel that close to his parents. And so um, these, these experiences that he's remembering with his grandparents, I think, are intensified as a result of the distance he felt from his own parents. Um, okay. Talk about um, Don Quixote. He comes up <laughs> yeah, in that story. Yeah, yeah. That story's about, to me, I mean, it's about many things. And the grandfather is, um, is obsessed with uh, Don Quixote. And, uh, and it's meant to be comic because in some ways the grandfather is sort of Don Quixote. He's, uh, he's living in a bit of a fantasy world. And, um, and that, that a fantasy world that puts himself uh, at the center of a heroic tale. And um, so it's a little bit of a meditation on on Don Quixote and, uh, you know, is the world, is, is Don Quixote a, uh, is the grandfather an absurd figure for us to make fun of or is the world absurd, you know? Um, and, uh, the son, I mean, the grandson is at a sort of young adolescent stage, um, where, you know, he's trying to figure out if his grandparents' reality is, is, is his reality, you know? And this story marks the beginning of him realizing that um, his grandparents' world is his world, but it's also a world that's, uh, you know, isolated and delusional to some extent. And um, so I'm trying to make a sort of meta commentary also on, you know, this cultural group and um, their sort of trajectory and role in American history. You know, Um, they see themselves and have seen themselves as the very sort of center of American culture and American life and American history. And by the time this story takes place, that's starting to pivot and change. And, um, on a, on a, on a, on a national level, but for the character, for the grandson, he's realizing the same thing. You know, he's, I am not my grandfather. I am not, um, I can't just absorb this, this history and stay on this island and become part of that trajectory. I have to, I have to go out and join the world <laughs> and readjust my orientation to it. You know. Now we're in the third story, the return of the native, and the same guy, John Jacobs Howland, the same grandson. He remembers the end of the following summer, nineteen eighty-two. Is this as personal a story as it feels like? Um, it's not directly autobiographical. Um, but it is very personal, if that makes any sense. Um, I mean, the sort of fictional tradition that I uh, was raised in, if you will, um, involves sort of transferring, you know, one's actual history into a slightly fictionalized version. Um, and many of the writers I admired and still admire do just that. Um, and so my mother did not go... Uh, off to California as the character's mother does. Um, but in many ways, I felt as though my, my parents were sort of in a lost generation, the 60s generation. And, um, and my grandparents, in some ways, stepped into that void, if you will, and, and um, were a sort of solid force for me. And so that part of it is autobiographical, you know? Mm-hmm. So now it's 1990, and John is recovering from his own addictions, working at a home for traumatized children, 
who'd been removed from their foster homes. He finds him, and then he finds himself in a in a difficult situation. Why does he make such terrible decisions? Ah, uh, because he's uh, selfish <laughs> and uh, and afraid and uh, and weak and self centered. Um, well, there's a lot of terrible decisions in that story, I suppose. I mean, the decisions that lead him to rehab, all of which predates the time of the story. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't want to write all that uh, that material. I've written it before um, in other books, and uh, this is this is a story where he's trying to get back on his feet, as you say, and he's doing it through trying to help these people, these kids who are who's, you know, suffering is uh, so much more extreme than his own, really. Um, and he just, he's terrified by their, uh, by their suffering is the best way I can put it. And he doesn't rise to the challenge of uh, being able to be there for people who need him. You know, he takes this job um, among kids who have so much need Um their need is almost to sort of limitless. Uh, they're so damaged and he's incapable of, of meeting that challenge and he runs from it. And in doing so, he's essentially also running from himself and running back to his own problems. And so it's a, it's a tough story. Um, it's easier to write that kind of story in retrospect, you know, I mean, um, it's, you know, it's easy to, I, I, you know, was that kind of person at one time in my life, and it's easier to write that story now that I'm much older. Um, okay, so now a uh, couple years later, and you kind of switch gears here. Suddenly the story is being told in third person, and uh, the only Howland mentioned is Ma- Mainwaring. Yep, yeah. Um, it's the, in the aftermath of a huge flood in the same town. Vaughn, right? Yep. That- yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about what about Mainwaring and how, what's his connection to John Stoughton and what about this story? Uh, this story, Flood, is um, it's only thematically connected to the main character. Um, the main character I see as John, the younger John. We've been talking about him, and he's in he's the main focus of the five five of the ten stories, and and uh, and this story doesn't really have anything directly to do with him. It does have, it is thematically connected to him. Um, the main character of, of flood is based on a friend of mine. Um, he's a very, but he's, he's, he's a lot like John in that he's, he's had sort of emotional and psychological struggles and struggles with addiction, but he is from a different kind of background. Um, he's from much more of a working class background and, he has a different relationship to his history, his family history. And um, I very much wanted to pull away from the family at various points um, in, in, in the book and not make the family the center point of every story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's true. But in the same story, everyone is remembering the grandfather, but we're not talking about John Stoughton here. No, that's that's a different. Okay. Yeah, that's a different okay. grandfather. So, but there's still it's still about a grandfather. That's right. Who might or might not have killed somebody that nobody ever talks about. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that no one ever talks about. I mean, uh, and I'm sure that's true in many families, but 
it's certainly true in the kind of New England families that I knew. I um, murder, know, I, even murder, they nobody would have mentioned it in passing. Um, well, I'm supposedly related to Lizzie Borden, and I didn't. That was kind of kept uh, under the rug for many years, and then okay, yeah, we keep that under the rug too. <laughs> and then uh, my grandmother's uh, my grandmother's aunt uh, shot herself when she was 18, and uh, and um, she was or no, she was about 19, I guess, or 20. And anyway, I mean, maybe that's something you would think that wouldn't come out, but. Uh, it was a very dramatic event in its time, and I didn't discover it until I was 37. So nobody ever talked about it again? No, I was the first one in the in my grandmother knew, but she died with that information. Hmm. And uh, my, my great aunt was a um, was first in her class at uh, Vassar at the time that she shot herself. And hmm. um, my grandmother, who wanted to go to Vassar, was forbidden to go because they blamed the suicide on too much education for women. And so my grandmother was refused an education because her father was afraid that the same thing would happen to her. And so, um, these sort of threads, uh, these historical threads happen in families and they happen on a larger cultural level. And that's kind of what my book is about the way this sort of history passes down through us on a cultural level and on a personal and familial level. And the two mm-hmm. sort of mirror each other in various ways. And we're only partially conscious of the of the histories that we inherit, you know. So uh, moving forward to 2000, the year 2000, and now Phoebe Hutchinson Howland, so still someone connected, is charged to sell the house where her father grew up. And this is the story called The Wreck of the Ipswich Sparrow. She finds a, a newspaper clipping about the aunt whose house it is. It was. So what's the connection between this family and John Stoughton Howland? Um, well, Phoebe is John uh, John's, uh, the younger John's cousin. Um, right. And okay. so well, that's that's the connection. It's still the same family, but it's a sort of larger family. And so this wouldn't be the house where our main character grew up. But uh, so I wanted to have a story that was about the the Howland, uh, the, the Howland family, but that wasn't about the, the, the main character's sort of immediate family. Um, Mm. but, uh, anyway, this is a story that I have, uh, a lot of personal affection for, I guess I wrote it. So, uh, but I, I did a lot of historical research and also used family documents and, um, and it, it's meant to sort of, uh, illustrate some of what I've been saying about the way in which sort of history kind of intrudes into the present, you know, it's a story of survival. What, what do you want the reader to take away from it? You know, that's an interesting question. I um, there's, I think, a lot of things. I mean, the sense of our own history um, and our relationship to it is the main theme. I think um, the young, the, the the main character Phoebe finds herself in California, and as I did in my mid twenties, and um, you know, the one of my favorite novels when I was younger. Uh, the unbearable lightness of being has a sort of scene a scene that takes place in California that really struck home for me because there's this sense of in California that everything is so new and that you can reinvent yourself and that the past is gone. And, um, and so I'm trying to contrast in that story that her movement from California to the house where she grew up and uh, her discovery that in many ways that past is not gone and um, she discovers 
you know, uh, things about this great aunt and her experience uh, with the shipwreck and the fact that she was married and had a child. Again, it's a, it's a story that uh, everyone has forgotten or has uh, decided to, uh, to keep hidden, you know, that reemerges and, and that she finds particularly has particular resonance for where she is in her own life now, separated from her husband and, uh, you know, trying to take care of two young children on her own as she's also working during a financial crisis in California. And so she's going through her own sort of survival. Um, and she finds particular resonance in the, in the story of her great aunt and that discovery. Um, That's a moving story. So again, it's about family yeah. and history and, and discovering connection to it. And, you know, you can, you can discover inspiration as well as dismay. I like that story a lot. <laughs> no. But the title story comes next. John, we're back to John Jacobs, Howland. He's the narrator again, and his sister's about to have a pretend wedding. And that's when their grandfather announces that he's planning to die. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, well, I'm laughing because I had so much fun. I had a lot of fun writing the story. It's, uh, I mean, I'm talking about history and family and dark things, but I, I, I really, um, I really enjoyed bringing humor into these stories. And this story in particular, you know, he arrives and his sister's taken a very, on the island uh, where he grew up and uh, there's all this anxiety within the family now that the grandfather's so old about what's going to happen to the the island house who who's who's going to inherit it and uh the sister john's sister younger john's sister is the only one with any money in the family um she's um gone into business and lives in new york and uh um and so there's a lot of anxiety about her and whether she'll sort of push the others out and uh so a lot of this this story is about this sort of anxiety about um, hanging on to the past or pieces of it, you know, things like real estate, you know, or some people fight over, uh, you know, a, a bureau or a desk, something that physically represents that that identity in that past. And, uh, and it's a little bit making fun of the uh, ridiculing in a way the uh, the anxiety of you know, identifying too, too much with those, with those items, with those, it's just dirt. And it's just, you know, it's just a house <laughs> and, uh, and letting go of that. And, 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 and at the end of the story, you know, his, uh, he asks his, uh, girlfriend who he's come to the Island with, you know, what am I going to do? And she says, well, basically you're just going to be like the rest of us. <laughs> you're going to get over the fact you and your family and everyone like that is going to get over the fact that you think you're the center of the universe. Which that was a wonderful one. And then there's a couple of more stories, but your final story, a couple more stories going forward until 2013. And then in your final story, you're going back in time to the matriarch. When she left, she left Scotland in 1741 and endured unbelievable hardships. And this story is, it's really kind of uh, difficult it, it, very beautifully done, but difficult to read how much she suffered. Yeah, this is Sarah Campbell's story. And this is based on a real story and um, that's been sort of documented. And I'm supposedly related to her. And she she moved to the area of Maine where I grew up um, at this in this era in 1741. So a lot of my family in my Maine family are from that sort of Anglo wasp tradition, but quite a few of them in the uh, are from the Scottish tradition as well. 
and a lot of uh, Maine was settled by Scots in the 1700s, many of whom were pushed off the land uh, by the English and by um, the uh, after the Battle of Culloden, the the new um, lairds who they call I think they called the sheep lairds. Um, they essentially replaced the uh, the Highlanders with sheep. Anyway, the idea is Sarah Campbell is part of that diaspora of, of Scots um, to uh, to Maine. And they arrived in Maine at an incredibly brutal moment in the early yeah. to mid 1700s. It was the it was the Afghanistan of New England. It was a war zone. Um, so I've I've counted, you know, uh, by looking through historical documents, I think I lost 25 great grandparents to various, you know, combat situations with the uh, in the French and Indian Wars. And she was in that era and it was a very very hard time. And she particularly, her particular story is, is just unbelievable. It's, but it's, you know, supposedly based on a real narrative. Wow. And, um, and so I kind of recast that narrative a little bit and infused a little bit into it. And, um, but I have a particular attachment to it because I feel the realness of it. If, um, and, um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm related to her or not. Her, her story represents the, the sort of fortitude of so many people, but so, and so many women, you know, who were on, you know, came, uh, to the frontier at that time. And, uh, of course they came and they were in conflict with the native people of that area who, uh, were completely, almost completely wiped out of Southern Maine and the mid coast Maine by the end of the 1700s. Um, so that's a sort of story that, lingers in the background of all these stories is a consciousness that her story represents great suffering, but so do the stories of the people who her, you know, group are coming to replace basically on the land. Um, so there's no, there's no native population in Maine or there are, there are, there, there are some reservations, um, down East, uh, Passamaquoddy and then the Micmac are, um, uh, Northern Maine going into New Brunswick. Um, but a lot of the, the conflict um, in 1700s Maine was uh, in southern and central Maine. That's where a lot of the sort of Anglo settlement um, creeped up the coast from Massachusetts and um, created conflict between the native population and the French, who are often you know, working with the native popula- population to try to push the, the English uh, and Scottish population out, and Irish too. Oh, wow. So, uh, this is quite... Anyway, sorry. I don't know if that's... Quite a powerful <laughs> story. I don't know. Really? Yeah, and I, I wanted to end on that and on the previous story, Wintering Over. I I have a sense that the, the main character, John, and his, you know, he's coming from a patriarchy, but in a way, he's moving into more of a matriarchy, if that, if that makes sense. I mean, there's a sense that the stories... Um, that he grew up with and the culture and ethos that he grew up with was uh, male dominated and patriarchal and that uh, women's stories were sort of um, um, not included in his mythology. Um, But that I wanted to bring started to, I wanted to start shifting that around as my sense of that has shifted in my own life and, uh, and my sense of my family own family history um, has changed over the years as I've come to learn about stories like Sarah Campbell's. And I'm also related to Anne Hutchinson, who is also an incredibly heroic uh, 
figure of American history. So, um, tell us. So, I've, I've spent a lot of we spent a lot of time on this book, but I know you must be working on other things. What's happening next? Well, um, speaking of uh, the women of the family, my I mean, uh, I, I uh, am co-writing a book with my sister. Um, who spent a lot of time working in the um, uh, humanitarian aid space, I guess you would call it. Um, she spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and Haiti over the last 20 years. And she was involved in um, working with the Yazidi population of northern Iraq. Yeah. And so she was in charge of this woman's campaign, um, Nadia Murad, who won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. And so my sister and I are writing co-writing a book on, on causes, um, basically humanitarian causes, and that sort of centers around the Yazidi cause, the Yazidi genocide. And uh, so that's been taking up a lot of my time for the last six months, but I, I love short stories, and uh, um, I can't wait to get back to them. Okay, because this but is it, a nonfiction project. This is, yes, very much a nonfiction project, and it's a relief to, uh, in a way, to write about um, – people have nothing to do with me or my history or, you know, but to, and to try to do some writing that really feels like it's trying to bring some important um, issues of international justice, you know, into the public consciousness. Mm, that, that sounds really interesting. I'll look forward to it. Anyway, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Jason Brown, author of A Faithful But Melancholy Account of Several Barbarities Lately Committed, a collection of linked stories. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.